this couple are the masterminds of the crime of the century. They're taking aim at $12 billion worth of diamonds. 11 Harrow House, a fortress with a vault 300 feet in the ground. Computer control locks, security guards, television cameras. No way in, no way out, or is there? We would beat the system. A couple who have never stolen a thing. I told you it would be easy. Backed by a man who doesn't need the money. Trying to rob $12 billion in diamonds guarded more carefully than anything in the world. What some people wouldn't do for a billion or two. Released in August of 1974, Eleven Harrow House, starring Charles Grodin, Candace Bergen, James Mason, Trevor Howard, and John Gielgud, was in some respects, tone-wise anyway, a unique at the time filmic mashup between the hip and smart-ass American heist caper film like the original Ocean's Eleven and The Hot Rock, and the more droll and sardonic European counterpart such as Top Cappy or the original The Italian Job. Grodin is Howard Chesser a low-on-the-totem-pole American diamond merchant who comes to England a few times per year to purchase rough stones from one of the world's leading gemstone clearinghouses, called the System by those in the biz, located at 11 Harrow House in the city's Mayfair district. While on the surface legit, the System, run by Meacham, portrayed by Gilgood, is actually the world's largest cartel, buying and selling both legal and illegal product from around the globe, but perhaps more importantly, stashing $13 billion worth in a high-tech vault below the ground in order to control the price of the world market. In essence, Eleven Harrow House is the 70s-era OPEC equivalent of the diamond world. After being chumped by the system and left holding a $1 million debt he can't pay to his most recent employer, wealthy aristocrat Clyde Massey, Trevor Howard, Cheshire and his lady love, Marin, a thrill-seeking American expat played by future Murphy Brown Candace Bergen, enlists the aid of an inside man working at Harrow House, James Mason, who bears a personal grudge against his employers, to pull off the crime of the century, clearing out every stone in a spectacular action which can alter the world economy if word ever got out, i.e. if those who pulled off the robbery are left alive to talk about it. <laughs> I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to the Movie Sneak Minipod Buried Treasure of the Week, Eleven Harrow House.
How can I help you, Sam? I need some information about number 11. What sort of information, Sam? I need to know all you know, especially about the arrangement of things below the ground floor. I know all about that, Sam. I thought you might. Eleven Harrow House was based on the 1972 best-selling novel by Gerald A. Brown, who before his death in 2015 had written about a dozen books, uh, all of them very, very popular pot-boiler thrillers. Among them, It's All Zoo from 1968, kind of a Fitzgerald-esque story about 60s-era American expats in Paris. Uh, The Ravishers from 1970, co-written with his wife Merle Lynn Brown, who was a former high fashion model in London, New York, Paris, and Rome. Uh, Sort of an early Brett Easton Ellis-like story about four rich male jet setters. And uh, he also wrote with her in 1974, The Arousers, which was kind of sort of a sequel, or at least a similar story told from the point of view of four women. There was Hazard in 1973 about a freelance intel operative on a personal vendetta hunt for a gang of international terrorists. Slide from 1976, an Irwin Allen-esque disaster survival story about a group of Angelinos attempting to escape mudslides and rattlesnakes charred from their nest into their homes, and more after two straight weeks of punishing near-biblical rain pummels the City of Angels. Uh, There was Green Ice from 1978, a romancing the stone kind of tale about an American expat and an heiress who become involved with a South American crime syndicate's plan to rip off millions in emeralds. And the 1981 film version of this book starred Ryan O'Neill, Ann Archer, and Omar Sharif. And there was 19 Purchase Street from 1982, a twist on Harrow House where a man and a woman infiltrate a billion-dollar international money laundering clearinghouse which a group of international bankers has taken from the New York mob and upgraded. (laughs) Wow. Harrow House is probably the most popular and successful of Brown's books, and it received accolades from people as varied as legendary attorney and author Ethley Bailey, Pierre Salinger, uh, the writer, former senator, and ABC News correspondent, who was also the press secretary for JFK and LBJ, and even Oscar De Beers of the famous, or infamous De Beers, international diamond merchant financier family. And most of them equated the novel's fusion of real-world geopolitics in regards to the diamond industry and suspense with Frederick Forsyth's Today of the Jackal, which had become a worldwide bestseller the previous year of 91. In fact, around the time of the publication of Eleven Harrow House, the De Beers Diamond Organization, at one time controlling 80% of the world's market, but at this time now only down to about 35%, (laughs) was secretly attempting to infiltrate and control the U.S. trade and was busted for violation of antitrust laws. Brown's novel was purchased by legendary independent producer Elliot Kastner, And when he passed away in late June of 2010, the American-born filmmaker, who for most of his professional career had based himself in the UK, was best remembered as a man, a force of nature actually, who could get some of the most famous and at times stubborn authors, playwrights, and other scribes, uh, many who'd never thought they'd ever cooperate with Hollywood, to work with him. And as such, writers the likes of William Goldman, Alistair MacLean, Tom McGuane, Donald Westlake, those representing the estate of Raymond Chandler and others churned out such now-classic Kastner-produced films as Harper, The McLean Adventures Where Eagles Dare, Fear is the Key, When Eight Bells Toll and Break Heart Pass, The Long Goodbye from Robert Altman, Farewell My Lovely, and the 1977 version of The Big Sleep, both with Robert Mitchum as Philip Marlowe, Cops and Robbers, 
the Tom McGuane films Rancho Deluxe, 92 in the Shade, and the Missouri Breaks, Saturn Three, Folks, Garble Talks, White of the Eye, Angel Heart, and many more. Whew. Harrow House was another hot literary property which Kastner and the studio gave nearly as a gift to actor Charles Grodin. While now known for popular comedic roles in films such as Heaven Can Wait, Seems Like Old Times, Midnight Run, Dave, and the popular family film Beethoven, in the early 70s, however, Grodin was pretty much a struggling actor who'd had bit parts in films such as Rosemary's Baby and Mike Nichols' Catch-22. He was part of that whole dryly funny and perceptive character-based comedy movement populated by talents like Nichols uh, and Elaine May. And Grodin's big breakthrough as a star came with Neil Simon's The Heartbreak Kid in 1972, which happened to be directed by May, and that catapulted him into the A-list with other realistic-looking and behaving, very identifiable, guy-up-the-street type actors of the day, like Dustin Hoffman, Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, Peter Boyle, and such. Uh, these guys who were all changing the face of the leading man from pretty boy to, yeah, I know this guy because I am this guy type. Anyway, after The Heartbreak Kid, Grodin was very careful about choosing his next role, and with Harrow House, Kastner offered him both screenplay approval as well as final approval on the rest of the cast. New York-born and based director Aram Avakian was chosen to helm Eleven Harrow House. Best known as editor on films such as Warren Beatty's Lilith and Mickey One, as well as The Next Man and Honeysuckle Rose, he also directed a handful of theatrical films over the course of a decade. The most noteworthy including Harrow House, Donald Westlake's Cops and Robbers from 1973, and 1970's still very much talked about, and in some circles still very much incendiary, End of the Road. Co-scripted by Dr. Strangelove and Easy Rider's Terry Southern, and starring Stacey Keach, James Earl Jones, and Harris Eulin in the Cuckoo's Nest-like independent cult hit, which Steven Soderbergh later embraced, spearheaded a theatrical re-release of, then even later filmed a companion documentary, An Amazing Time, a conversation about the end of the road. End of the Road and Cops and Robbers were films which were off-center, to say the least. Cops and Robbers sold by United Artists as a comedy caper film along the lines of Westlake's earlier The Hot Rock, but while often humorous, more with a dark side like those in other films of the day, like Mother Jugs and Speed, MASH, and The Hospital. Avakian shot Harrow House's interiors at the film's base of operations, Britain's iconic Pinewood Studios, while the bulk of its exteriors were lensed on location in London, including a major sequence in Berkeley Square, the sprawling Ragley Hall estate in Warwickshire, doubling as the home of Trevor Howard's Clyde Massey, and the lush, oh-so-green Buckinghamshire countryside a perfect arena for the film's climax, which would include one of the most wild-ass car chases in cinema history. And we'll get to that soon. <laughs> the shooting went moderately well. I mean, in Grodin's first autobiography, it would be so nice if you weren't here. He mentioned a few episodes where he and fellow American Candace Bergen met with a little snobbery on the part of a few wealthy Brits, mostly landowners and their representatives who either didn't cotton to Americans in particular or just film industry types in general. And Trevor Howard was known to kick back a few belts on set. But after being confronted, the respected actor curtailed his alcohol intake. But other than that, the shoot wrapped quite satisfactorily, and the filmmakers returned to America for post-production and the eventual first advanced screening before a test audience. And that's where things started to go a little sideways. When Harrow House was assigned to a director like End of the Road and Cops and Robbers, Aram Avakian, Hollywood should have expected a not-exactly-down-the-middle adaptation. 
For whatever reason, though, it didn't, and the finished film would come as a shock to some, a delight to others, and would sharply divide critics and audiences, what few there were, of the day. Jean-Marc taught me. Except I'm not so hot from the hip, you know? It's not as accurate. See, it's not a good tight pattern. This is a PPK. I got one for you, too. They're matching pairs. That's sweet. I'm telling you, PPK can stop just about anything. From what? Living. Look, the best way to get shot is to have a gun. Oh, that's really stupid. I just want you to try it. Try it for me. Now we're talking shooting. This is where the guy's supposed to look terrific. We won't be needing guns. Books, not guns. Books. The way it turned out, I was very wrong. My first exposure to Eleven Harrow House, novel and film, was in 1975, when HBO debuted in the South Jersey suburb of Willingboro, New Jersey, and the trailer, where we see snippets of that butt-wild car chase, and we hear a droll announcer with his cool basso voice saying, what some people wouldn't do for a billion or two. <laughs> I knew I had to see it. And boy, did I. Watching it about 15 to 20 times in one month. In fact, it became one of the first movies I memorized line for line and musical note for note. Yeah, that kind of drove my parents crazy. <laughs> but it was not only my first film school, but actual first film writing and editing school too. Writing in the sense that it was one of the first films which at a young age made me keenly aware of rhythmic dialogue, something you're obviously eventually going to notice after watching something 20 times within three or four weeks, and almost music-like visual pacing editing, this from now and then watching the film with no sound, while mouthing back that aforementioned memorized dialogue and just letting the images wash over you like stanzas in a complex musical composition. Hey, we all have our childhood eccentricities, right? But I later noticed even something else, something which I loved, but which many critics and others didn't. After seeing the film, I had to read the book, and it was a huge surprise. This was the days of the Doubleday, Book of the Month, and Literary Guild book clubs, so I picked up the hardcover through one of them, don't remember which, fairly inexpensively, and I was very shocked to discover that it had a very different tone. One of the things I loved about the film was his sense of smart-ass humor, mostly evident in Grodin's hangdog, bone-dry, acerbic wit, uh, that of a John Q. public-working stiff American who's built himself into a respectable diamond broker, but who is constantly looked down upon and often exploited, and he kind of knows it going in, by upper-crust British bluebloods who inherited their wealth and will never view him as truly good enough to be within their presence, but they put up with him because they have to. This is an element which is more pronounced in the film than in the novel, and it gives the film most of its humor, which for me always made it more interesting and a cut above just another knockoff of, say, the Hot Rock, Ocean's Eleven, or the Thief Who Came to Dinner type of caper yarn. Uh, there was almost a cultural battle, or more accurately, cultural chess game, of the classes going on here, and the robbery caper was just the ultimate realization symptom of that cultural battle. Some critics, however, didn't take too kindly to this interpretation of Gerald Brown's more hard-edged and serious material, which kind of feels like it was cut from the world of Blood Diamond rather than the lighter, breezier The Hot Rock. 
and I can understand this disappointment. Uh, I can't say they're wrong. However, added humor as added humor has, uh, for me at least, genuinely made better the film versions of the original, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, which really adds a lot of acerbic, fast-talking New York wit, which isn't in John Gotti's novel, and Sidney Lumet's version of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. In fact, pretty much every Christie adaptation on TV and in film since has infused that same kind of droll humor that was in Lumet's film. And many forget, or didn't realize to begin with, that even the Guardians of the Galaxy, in their original comic book incarnation, wasn't really humorous or funny. They weren't. But they were played quite straight and serious. Eleven Harrowhouse's original screenwriter was Jeffrey Bloom, pretty much known back in the 70s for stuff like Dog Pound Shuffle, uh, the nifty movie Swashbuckler with Robert Shaw and James Earl Jones, a couple of episodes of Starchy and Hutch, and the Night of the Rat segment from the 1983 film Nightmares, and a few more. But in the Harrow House credits, along with one for Bloom's screenplay, there's also one which reads Adaptation by Charles Grodin. And this is because after the film was assembled and shown to an audience at a test screening, 50% of the feedback was negative, in the sense that the audience felt there were just far too many quiet, or dead spots, where no action or even dialogue played. Even though the film wrapped up with one hell of an extended car chase, staged by Her Majesty's Secret Service's Anthony Squire, the time leading up to that chase felt for the audience too staid, dry, and monotone. Uh, because of this, Charles Grodin, along with an uncredited Elaine May, and humorous artist and I'm Not Rapper play playwright Herb Gardner, undertook to fill in those dead zones with Cheshire's now acerbically funny voiceover. Uh, interestingly though, and I've only recently been made aware of this, for years the film circulated in both the version with Cheshire's voiceover and a version without. The with version airing on cable and released on videotape and Laserdisc, and the version without airing over the years on U.S. commercial television, alternately under the titles Fast Fortune and Anything for Love. Then in 2011, Shout Factory finally released the film on DVD, no Blu-ray as yet, sorry, uh, and this is the theatrical with the voiceover version. Released by 20th Century Fox in the fall of 1974, Eleven Harrow House landed with a resounding thud at the box office. In fact, in no time, it was in many markets double featured up with a re-release of Fox's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid a film which shared its part comedy, part serious pedigree, but obviously Sundance and Butch being much more successful with audiences in that regard. Years later, the film many once never gave a damn about did, however, manage to find a growing and appreciative audience. And one reason was because of the growing popularity of Grodin's brand of low-key humor over that time. Uh, later, a large part of the success of films such as Heaven Can Wait, The Lonely Guy, Midnight Run, and even the great Muppet Caper. <laughs> so in a very real way, it kind of just took time for his brand of wit to catch on with audiences appreciative of that sort of thing, or for audiences to catch up with that brand of wit. Oh, and of course, there's that climactic chase we mentioned. Anthony Squire, the second unit director, he directed various documentaries and episodes of British TV, but he was best known, or is best known, as the second unit stunt director on movies such as The Blue Max, where he headed up the aerial unit, wow, uh, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Condor Man, uh, not a great film, but it's got some cool action sequences, and uh, Eye of the Needle. 
but he's most famous for the stock cars on ice chase sequence from on her majesty's secret service and the climactic car chase of 11 harrow house is a worthy successor uh, replete with the same signature combo of holy crap how'd they do that and i sure hope no one was killed doing so and dry sense of humor in the midst of it all in fact i'd rate the climactic chase of 11 harrow house which runs a good 15 minutes of the film's total 94 minute running time as one of the 10 greatest car chases in screen history right up there with the french connection bullet the seven ups on her majesty's secret service uh, the aforementioned original the Italian job, Diva, and a few others. Harrow Houses is unique, however, and that its chase involves not only a Ferrari made Dino 246 GTS and a Lotus Europa Special, which would have been badass enough in and of themselves, but also a Jag S-Type, various fans, and a posse of gunmen atop a string of horses and with a pack of hunting dogs <laughs> barreling forth from the historic Ragley Hall and out onto the lush green plains of County Warwickshire, the birthplace of William Shakespeare himself. In the end, while beginning life is a rather serious and detailed, if highly fictionalized, thriller set within the world diamond trade, the film version of Eleven Harrow House emerges as an admittedly stripped down, but enjoyable as all hell thriller diller with ample helpings of humor in its own right. What some people wouldn't do for a billion or two. Can you dig it? I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online, and thanks for joining me for the Movie Sneaks Buried Treasure of the Week. See you next time up there in those cheap seats. A reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only.